1: All right. Well, hello, everybody. My name is uh, Troy Hallsell, and I am your host on New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jen C. Brown. She is the Joe B. France Associate Professor of History at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, and the writer, producer, and narrator of the Gulf Podcast. Today, we're discussing her book Trout Culture: How Fly Fishing Forever Changed the Rocky Mountain West, uh, published by the University of Washington Press, um, and. From beer labels to literary classics like A River Runs Through It, uh, trout fishing is a beloved feature of the iconography of the American West. But as Jen Brown demonstrates in trout culture, the popular conception of Rocky Mountain trout fishing as a quintessential experience of communion with, nature's, with nature belies the sport's long history of environmental ma- manipulation, engineering, and ultimately transformation. A fly fishing enthusiast herself, Bla- Brown... Pro- Sorry, (laughs) Brown places the rise of recreational trout fishing in a local and global context. Globally, she shows how the European sport of fly fishing came to be a defining tourist-attracting feature of the expanding 19th century American West. Locally, she traces the way that the burgeoning fly fishing tourist industry shaped the environmental, economic, and social development of the Western United States. Introducing and stocking favorite fish species, eradicating the less favored native trash fish, changing the courses of waterways, and leading to conflict with Native Americans' fishing and territorial rights. Through this analysis, Brown demonstrates that the majestic trout streams, often considered a timeless feature of the American West, are in fact a product of countless human interventions, adding up to profound manipulation of the Rocky Mountain environment. Jen, thanks for speaking with me today. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me, Troy.
1: All right, so let's just jump into it. Um, uh, you know, here on the New Books Network. We always kind of start off with the first question. Um, you know, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, but more specifically, how did you come about this project?
2: Okay, well, I come from wheat farming families from Montana and Saskatchewan, and I actually have a dual citizenship. Um, but we moved off the farm when I was a kid, and I grew up in rural eastern Montana. Um, that's where I really got interested in. I read a lot as a kid. So I got interested in history. And um, when I went to college, I went to college in Dillon, Montana, in southwestern Montana, um, at the University of Montana Western, which was a wonderful experience. But um, I also learned to fly fish there. And um, it was really those passions for studying history and um, also fly fishing that drove my studies in graduate school. And so the book comes out of my dissertation, which I did at Washington State University and then um, published after I graduated.
1: Well, cool. Thank you. Um, you know, my, my I think I'd mentioned this when we were when I were emailing back and forth. I, I had last summer intended, um, and even this summer for that matter, to to learn fly fishing or at least take a take a lesson. Not if I would necessarily do it, you know, for a big pastime. But I had knee surgery and I finally recovered, so maybe next summer I'll jump into that. Um, but but what I. T- you know, to that point, is, you know, for me, you know, coming from Memphis, Tennessee down south, um, there was fishing, but there wasn't fly fishing where I was from. We just stood on a riverbank and stuff like that. But, like, but like, like you, you, you you'll demonstrate in the book is even before I came to Montana, even before I even thought about moving up here, I associated fly fishing with Montana. Right, and, and so you know, very throughout our conversation, I'm you know, I'm confident we'll talk about how I at least <laughs> came to associate those two things. Um, and as an aside, I like Dylan a lot. It's a nice little town. I've only been there once, but um, yeah. Um, so. But before we jump into the, the meat and bones of the book, um, I was like asking this one to, to, to researchers is like, what did this research process look like? Um, meaning, you know, what kind of sources were you using? Um, you know, kind of what did you use to pull together to create this finished product?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the wonderful thing about researching this book is Washington State University's special collections had this really great collection of angling books and then while I was there, they got a massive donation of more angling books um, to the tune of something like $2 million donation of books. Um, so that was a great, I spent a lot of afternoons down in special collections and I learned, I got, I earned a nickname by the archivist there, which is always a great, <laughs> um, a, a great way to tell you kind of having in with the archivist, but they called me the fishing lady because I just go down there. I'd read fishing books, but a lot of the other research was um, archival research in various state repositories um, across the Rocky Mountains. So I would do road trips. I went to Laramie, Cheyenne, Boise, um, uh, Helena, Bozeman, uh, Salt Lake City, and uh, spent you know, a week or two in some of these uh, repositories around the West.
1: Cool. Yeah. That, that's one of the things I, I noticed from a kind of a researcher standpoint. And as a, a recent ish, you know, PhD graduate, it, it seemed like a, a source base that was readily available, both in that it was a lot of government documents. But then as I came to realize just how many people were writing about fly fishing as a sport, as, as a thing. Right. And then it just took somebody to kind of sit down and go, okay, let's, let's put these together and see what we come up with. And so, you know, it, it was, it, I love Taryn through all the, um, the uh, the the footnotes because for me I'm always on the lookout for another project and there were there was little things around there going okay there's something in here that I may want to tackle later on down the road um, but okay well thank you for that all right so let's um, let's just kind of jump into the the meat like I said the meat and bones of the um, of the book itself and you know it's probably no surprise to the listeners we're just going to kind of start at the beginning work our way through the contents of the book and so. So the first question I want to ask you is, what role did 19th century imperialism and industrial capital play in bringing fly fishing to the Rocky Mountain West?
2: Well, the book is uh, about fly fishing, but it's also about angling in general, and that's just defined as fishing with a hook and a line, but fly fishing sells better, and so that's how it worked its way into the title. Um, And it's also about trout, and not only how fly fishing got to the West, but how non-native species such as rainbow trout and brown trout got to the west. So in that regard, trout are a modern species, are a modern species, and uh, in a cultural and historic sense, because they could only come by railroad, by steamship, and by kind of modern methods of industrial transportation. Um, but these ideas of sport fishing and fly fishing came through imperialism, came through uh, settlement. Um, And this was a process that wasn't just happening in the West. It was happening in places like South Africa, New Zealand, um, many of the major settler societies as 19th century imperialism kind of spread its tendrils around the world.
1: Thank you. Um, um, So, yes, so it was definitely, you know, just the movement of people and ideas definitely pushed in um, a very you know push pulled carried uh fish uh, or trout in this instance out west um and you know it, it was interesting for me personally, as I was reading um the working through the chapters you know i i, I got about halfway through that first chapter and I was kind of like well no duh right it, it was an interesting thing for me that like while I was very interested in how this overall process played out kind of in the back of my head was like you know, you, you you know that this is a thing, but it really takes somebody to kind of highlight and, and and bring out these stories to kind of make me see me personally, and hopefully, anybody else that may listen or read the book in the future, kind of see the landscape much differently. Um. So moving on, so what role did conservation, the conservation movement, play in physically and culturally rewriting the Western landscape for trout?
2: Well, many of these sporting anglers and just uh, Western settlers, they were involved in conversations about conservation. And this is kind of this larger uh, conversation about how people interact with the natural world in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And um, part of those conversations uh, were about not only conserving the environment and conserving water, but also about improving it. And in this case, Uh, through fish culture and the artificial propagation of fish. So um, trout culture is really um, a book about how trout got to the West and then how the West becomes known for this place for fly fishing and trout. And so it's like this larger process and evolution. And if we go back to the conservation movement, what happens is that a lot of these... um, conservationists and anglers and settlers, they were calling for more trout, right? Mm -hmm. Bringing bringing fish into the West. And that's really how how trout got here is advocates in the West who were uh, willing to meet trains at the station and carry buckets of fish out into streams and mountains and um, dump them all over the place. And for them, it was a great thing, right? It created this whole new um fishing opportunity, this whole new world of fishing opportunities but um, it was also pretty haphazard and it was that kind of haphazard introduction of non-native species that uh, fish current fisheries managers are still struggling with today.
1: Um, is there is there a particular figure or maybe an organization during this time period that stands out as kind of a key, you know, propagator of a lot of this conservation stuff, whether it was done well or poorly in the early uh, period here?
2: Um, It was many people, I would say. Um, There were some interesting characters that I found in the course of my research who were involved in this. There were some ranchers out in the middle of nowhere who were writing into Forest and Stream magazine. There were um, fish culturalists out of Bozeman that Um, were well known uh, for their work on um, other fish and black bass in the south and moved to Bozeman and were involved in artificial propagation of grayling and um, trout and um, various other species. So it was really, uh, I would, it's kind of a grassroots thing among sportsmen in the West, Um, but uh, there are some, some interesting people who were involved in it as well.
1: And and during this kind of early period, I just can't remember off the top of my head uh, what you'd said the book. But is this also um, kind of when, like you know, your state whether they're well funded and and well, you know, well manned um, hatcheries? Is this when this kind of the the larger kind of hatchery system develops throughout a lot of state governments and stuff during this time period?
2: Yeah, it all kind of happens um, throughout the course of the late nineteenth century and the U.S. Fish Commission would be established in 1871. This would be the first national agency devoted to conservation. And it was really in response to declining shad populations on eastern rivers. But the second national fish hatchery was in Colorado in Leadville. Um, So it starts uh, in the West and in California, too. So you had some major federal hatcheries that were specifically focused in the West, both bringing fish in, but also exporting, um, in the, the case of California, exporting rainbow trout elsewhere. So, um, larger conversations take place about artificial propagation, and this is happening, the technology actually comes from France, um, and their term for um, these fish hatcheries was actually a fish factory which is very much kind of like a 19th century industrialization term. But uh, so you had kind of most of the major uh, imperialist nations running massive fish culture programs, uh, Great Britain, France, uh, Germany, the United States. Um, but it was spread elsewhere to Argentina had a large uh, fish culture program. Japan did. Um, and, it was just seen as a technology that was kind of spread both through imperialism, but also through diplomacy among nations.
1: Cool. Thank you. Yeah, actually, I, I, I guess I, 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 didn't realize that. So when you're talking about California, they're actually doing fish hatchery work with the intention of putting those fish like in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana. Is, that, is that I understand that correctly?
2: Yeah. So I shouldn't clarify. Um, in Montana and the Rocky Mountains, the most well-known fish that people like travel to fish for are rainbow trout and brown trout. And those are non-native species. And those were um, brought in through those pure processes of industrialization and imperialism that I talk about in the book. And um, r- rainbow trout are native to the Pacific coast and uh, of North America, as well as the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia, so essentially the nor- Northern Pacific Rim. Uh, brown trout are native to Europe and Great Britain, um, and those were largely kind of brought to um, the West and intermixed species of the the subspecies of brown trout from Germany intermixed with the subspecies of brown trout from Scotland, and they become, you know, a well-known Western fish as well. And then brook trout, which are an Eastern trout that come from uh, Eastern North America, were also largely propagated in the West. So a lot of the fish culture work was bringing non-native species in, but also exporting species. Um, In the case of California, as I said, is exporting rainbow trout everywhere and also exporting uh, cutthroat trout and great Arctic grayling, but only to like a lesser extent.
1: Yeah, it, it's funny as you're saying that I, all I could think of, you know, you know, when you introduce a non-native species, you know, there's always the work that goes into it. Like you demonstrate in your book, right? Both, you know, you got to bring the non-native species of fish in. You, 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 build up the populations through hatcheries, you go and you, you stick them wherever you're going to stick them. Um, but it, like all I could think of is growing up in the South is that it's like somebody coming around and planting kudzu everywhere, you know, <laughs> it just kind of takes <laughs> over and everything. Well, I mean, that's by no means a similar comparison, but that was what I, I was sitting here thinking of like of a, maybe I was thinking more of a, an invasive species versus a non-native. They're not necessarily one and the same, but, but that was the first thing that popped into my head as you're as you explaining that. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, they grow like weeds, right? mm-hmm. Rainbow trout and brown trout easily and readily became naturalized in Western rivers.
1: Okay. Um, and, and we're in, in kind of the, the, the fish that they displace. Well, that's, I think that's two, I got two questions to go before we get to the trash fish, which, which which just as a title was hands down my favorite chapter title, but, um, so, so let's actually, so your book is called trout culture. Um, and so can you a define what that is, but then also explain how it developed?
2: Sure. Well, first off, Trout culture is just a reference to the fish culture and the hatcheries and artificial propagation activities that are sprouting up across the West in the late 19th century. Um, And then the second kind of meaning of the term is the cultural term. So how, you know, the book from goes from how these trout got here to how they become a central part of Western culture, how the West becomes known for trout, because trout live Almost everywhere. Rainbow trout and brown trout and brook trout have been introduced and naturalized on every continent besides Antarctica. And um, they become naturalized on every continent besides Antarctica. So it's a widespread species. And that's actually rainbow trout and brown trout are listed um, among the world's worst 100 invasive species. Uh, So, like kudzu, I'm sure kudzu is probably on that list as well. Uh, so how the, how do they become known as Western fish and that's really what some of the later chapters are about is due to the growing tourism and outdoor recreation economies there's more and more people that are coming to the west to fish but then there's also just these fish become a central part of angling culture in the Rocky Mountains and so trout culture is both the actual, introduction of the fish but it is these fish become part of the angling sp- culture of the west
1: it kind of feels to mix metaphors you kind of a chicken and an egg scenario when you're trying to kind of explain you know which came first almost type thing and mm-hmm. so that kind of leads to a follow-up question is you know so getting to that trout culture especially a tourism aspect you know you know i live in great falls montana and about what is it, an hour down the road you have craig you know, a small village off of I fifteen that has a great restaurant, Isaac's, after named after Isaac Walton. Um, but then also, it's its thing is fly fishing, right? Like it is a it's a town that probably has fifty year round um, uh, fifty year round uh, residents, but during the summertime, whatever the fishing season kind of it exists, right? You know, there's easily I'm making this number up, but you know, two three hundred people there throughout, you know, almost every day, right? And so for me, it it kind of begs a question, you know, so you have the introduction of these non-native species of trout and and rainbow and brown, you know, that you've mentioned a bunch of times. But it's also, I'm I'm sitting here wondering, you know, how is it, you know, I don't have the best way way to, to frame this question, but like how do, you know, what ideas and stuff are kind of pulling people in to go, hey, let's go trout fishing, fly fishing, but then at the same time, too, I feel like these reg- this region is going to kind of project out that message, hey, come here to fly fish or come here to go fishing, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess what kind of process is at work to kind of advertise and then pull people in? And it just seems like the cycle that just kind of go goes on up until uh, 8.20 a.m. on November 5th, 2021.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Fishing was a popular pastime, um, both as a kind of sport and subsistence activity um, across the West, across, you know, settlers and natives and, um, you know, across races, classes, genders. But what happens is that it gets sold to, essentially, it starts with the railroads, right? The railroads trying to make money in the West, um, especially in the late 19th, early 20th centuries when they're seeing declining Fares and declining profits, and they need, they need to kind of bring in people. And so they sell uh, fishing and trout as essentially a, a recreational pastime to a lot of middle-class businessmen in cities like Chicago um, and New York and the East Coast. So there, there's this growing, developing, guiding economy. And you see this emerge in the late 19th century, where you have both kind of rural Westerners, but also natives, too, who served as guides for tourists that would come on the railroads. But then what you start seeing is it, it kind of mirrors the development of the larger tourism industry in the West. So there's this new push and new kind of ways to sell the West and fishing um, with road building in the 1920s and 30s. And um, you have this kind of massive push for road building, but then you also have all of these kind of resulting brochures and uh, billboards and ways to kind of sell, sell trout fishing in Idaho and Wyoming and all of the states and the Rocky Mountains.
1: And, and as you're saying that, it it, uh, it pulls out or, or points to, uh, you know, kind of the literature on, you know, ski, the ski industry out west, how railroads early on played a big part um, to, to get people. And I'm thinking is it Sun Valley in Idaho? I forget what kind of one of the really early big ski resorts, but that's kind of, it was a joint, if I remember correctly, it was a joint venture with, you know, investors, but also a railroad trying to get people, to justify the railroad's almost existence. We've got to get people out here to participate. Um, so so you have the railroads playing a part, but I, I, I imagine too that during this time period, there's a lot of people, and you already mentioned, you know, just from the the archival work, just the the angling books that were uh, in circulation, people writing about angling. So whether it's kind of the sport itself, I remember you referenced a number of, um, I don't know if it was books or just kind of parts of a book about tying flies and what works in particular environments. And then the role, uh, you know, field and stream, uh, where people are, are coming out West, experiencing, right, writing about their experience, you know, for people back, you know, in this case, I'd imagine mostly back East to, to read and consume. So can you talk about that relationship and that process a little bit?
2: Yeah, well, you know, one of the things about Western fishing is that it evolves into its own thing, right? That sport fishing, as practiced today throughout much of the world, has roots in European, uh, in Europe, and is spread elsewhere through empires. But as as sports brought to places like the West, you have this kind of mix of um, local and then uh, global processes that make it its own and a lot of fly fishing and a lot of kind of western patterns are interestingly enough using elk hair and deer hair and that was actually a native american kind of fishing uh, lure uh, tradition that came from places in the east that's kind of brought to the west Uh, so that that was kind of one of the interesting things is western fishing becomes its own thing and it's this mix of traditions that emerges of how do you catch fish? Well, one of the ways is you need uh, heavily kind of buoyant flies to float on the top of kind of some of these major rivers that are kind of riffles and runs and um, that sort of thing. And also the flies are meant to mimic natural insects. And so you kind of need big, bushy flies to mimic, say, things like salmon flies and stone flies and some of the major kind of, you know, free stone insects on Western rivers. And so that kind of emerges as the West is its own thing. You have uh, fly shops being built. You have Western fly tires. You have Western riders. And they're all kind of developing and uh, transforming what becomes this Western trout culture.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: And it's interesting, you know, it kind of had me thinking about, you know, so you have folks from, you know, just let's just say the Eastern United States, right? And they come out West and maybe they they were doing fly fishing out there or they use particular kind of ties. They get here, it's a different environment. It's a, Maybe it's a different type of fish, different materials available. So you kind of have to adjust. And it, and it got me thinking about, you know, I got a friend of mine, Who, uh, she, her and her husband are from Brazil. And when they, I was going to grad school with her. And, and so they would want to make Brazilian dishes, right? But they didn't have exactly the thing that they needed to make it. So they would get the adjacent ingredient that you find in Memphis, Tennessee. And so it just kind of got me thinking about how, like, a a specific place forces that person to adapt, um, fly fishing, you know, recipes, right? To, 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 to make do with what you got. Mm hmm. Um, okay. Uh, hold on. And, and, and one other thing, and, and I think as we get, um, yeah, so so get to talk about trash fish next, but, you know, so what I think last question I have on, on this, um, this trout culture process is uh, I, I got the sense, and I, I don't know if you explicitly stated it, but I got the sense that this was a very, like a very quintessential kind of progressive era rooted type thing um, in that you know, and what I remember is, you know, the literature talking about fly fishing was very much tapping into this. Hey, you need to get out of the city. You need to get into nature. Um, and it also tied up into that our ideas. And I'm going to specifically talk about the in this instance here, like gender, right? Like what is appropriate for men to do when it comes to fishing, women and things like that. Can you, so can you talk about the gendered aspect of uh, this trout culture?
2: Yeah, well, what's interesting about fly fishing, as opposed to some of the other kind of outdoor recreation activities, say, like fox hunting or hunting in general, is that uh, for women, it's actually um, an acceptable pastime um, in Vic- Vic- Victorian Great Britain and also Victorian United States of uh, as long as women are kind of maintaining their traditional gender boundaries, and they are um, still wearing their long skirts and uh, really inappropriate fishing <laughs> fishing gear that we would think of today, uh, it was seen as as a way to commune with nature and commune with God. And there's really a lot of fly fishing and religious connections that I don't really delve into in the book, but a lot of authors have looked into. So women can Fly fish, and they fly fished in in smaller numbers, but you see quite a few pictures of women fishing in the late nineteenth century, and it becomes kind of acceptable as as a sport, as I said. So there's this this gendered aspect of as long as they're not like pushing too many boundaries, they're accepted in into the sport, if that makes sense. And there's actually um, some really well known women fly tires and women kind of fly fishers um, back east, but also in the West too, Um, which is pretty interesting, I think, compared to what else is going on in the late 19th century. But a lot of them are kind of also forgotten um, to an extent. And um, as fishing evolves, it becomes uh, a family activity for a lot of Westerners. It's not seen as a family activity for a lot of tourists who are Mostly white males, but in the West, fly fishing in the mid, you know, early and mid 20th century is uh, largely a family activity. And you see this in the career of Ted Trueblood. And he's a a famous fishing writer. He's probably the most famous sport fishing writer the West had in that era. And when he started his job, he was the longtime uh, fishing editor for Field and Stream magazine. And when he started his job, he said he wanted to stay in Idaho, right? He's born and raised in Idaho. And um, he he kind of talked them into, he talked the, the larger editor into, he could stay in Idaho and write and spend all of his time hunting and fishing and birding and um, doing all the kind of Western outdoor activities. But when asked, he said he wanted to uh, write about fishing, and outdoor recreation as kind of a family thing. And the editor told him that the readers of the magazine, and this is 38 or so when he first starts out at Field and Stream, the readers of the magazine um, were largely male, and he should uh, actually write his articles that were specifically focused for that, you know, that demographic. And he would spend, his wife and his Two sons would actually go and do all these outdoor activities with them, but when he wrote about it, he had to write about fishing as kind of a masculine male sport, um, and for that male audience of readers back East. Um, That was an an interesting look into the gender dynamics of the later period, because you certainly still had women fishing, and you'd have even more women fishing by the 1970s, but... Um, they're kind of forgotten in the selling the West aspect of it, right? They're forgotten in the print culture and in the, the myths and the iconography that evolves around uh, Western trout.
1: No, that's an interesting point on on the selling aspect and women being least in kind of, and this even gets to just how I think about it, right? It's when I think of the West, I think of cowboys, Right on horses and, and just kind of the, the, the imagery that I see or I have absorbed over time, it's always men. Right. And so, so, so that that happened is not surprising, but, um, but you're right. You know, like you said, it was very much a, 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 an activity that really anybody could and did participate in. Um, okay. So trash fish. Um, so, so so this is this is one where can you explain what trash fish were or I guess even are, if that's still a, a term in common use today? And then what was their relationship with sport fishermen?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So this was one of the, the most interesting kind of questions that come out of my research in the book is that how do people conceive of nature and conceive of different species of animals? And um, those ideas are very much rooted in time and place. And you see this with how certain species of fish are treated. And uh, some native species of fish are considered or were considered, and some still are to this day considered trash fish um, and seen as undesirable species to fish for, both in terms of sport and in terms of food. And one of the most widespread species in the West is mountain whitefish, who kind of fall under this category. But there are also a lot of native suckers in the various river basins that also are considered less desirable than trout and um, the the well-known kind of pretty sport fish. And so what happens is that you see with the introduction of new species, trout become the favored sport and food fish of the West. And um, with that, with these changes that we've been talking about, a lot of the other fish species are seen as undesirable. They're sometimes thrown away on banks and wasted um, and not eaten anymore, even though they were eaten by kind of early settlers and natives alike. And um, you see this kind of change over time in both how people conceive of these native species like mountain whitefish, but then also how they treat the species. Um, and this is this is kind of an interesting kind of shift over the course of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, and there was, you know, like like you said, where where, you know, some anglers would, would catch them and just chunk them on the the, the riverbank or, you know, whatever bank they're standing on. And like even me now I'm sitting here going, I'm like, who the heck is gonna sit there and waste food? You know what I mean? It just seemed like um like like the best example of I mean, you want to talk about something—an example that hammers home the idea of trash, right? Is that you just you catch this thing? It's like catching a boot in the lake, and you toss it on the on, on the on the bank, right? You don't—I'm not going to eat that. You know who the heck wants that? I mean, th- that was one of the things that absolutely blew my mind, and 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 to that to that part, right, where you where there's this 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 understanding of, you know, the ideal fish, your rainbow and your brown trout, especially, and then trash fish, white fish, I think that was the one I, I remember you, you saying the most. Um, are, are there class, is there is also like a, a concurrent, like class relationship to that as well? Like, like who's calling what trash fish? And I, I think you already kind of hinted at it, but I was wondering if you might be able to elaborate on that a little bit more.
2: Yeah, it's um, kind of middle class, white, male, well and some female conceptions of what what proper sport, sport fish are. And so the, the idea that, and it's also a lot of these conceptions evolve kind of post-World War II as people are fishing more for sport and recreation rather than just simply food. I mean, the two are really intermixed of when you go fishing and that sort of thing. Uh, you're not just fishing for sport. Most people uh, in the early kind of eras would keep at least some fish, um, even though they would practice catch and release. So the idea of, yes, just throwing them away uh, is, is something that really is new as standards of living rise in the rural West. And what's interesting about it is that a lot of the kind of fish that would be considered trash fish would be considered anywhere else just like, edible, random food fish of, like, Westerners go elsewhere. And pretty much, you know, anything would be considered that. The objection was saying that some of these fish were too bony to eat, but um, a lot of people smoke mountain whitefish and will eat suckers of, you know, various species. So it's, it was more of a, a kind of perception that comes out of that, that class
1: Class-based ideal, yeah, and those class ideas, you know, I feel like they're they're kind of very much, you know, built into the um, idea of sport versus subsistence fishing, right? Because if you if you have enough money to s- purely fish for sport, you're probably probably again going to be in a better economic standing than someone who does need to go out to fish to either as their sole means of bringing in food or to supplement, you know, whatever you might have. Um,
2: well, that changes over time, though. I mean, yeah. just to kind. Okay, expand on that point a little bit, because what happens is by the 50s, 60s, there's a considerable guiding economy um, that evolves in Montana and Wyoming and that sort of thing. And these guides, they, you know, today they they have a good summer and they call themselves thousandaires, you know, because they make, you know... Dozens of, you know, 20,000 in a summer or whatever. It's not very much, but um, if you're living in rural places like Dillon or Ennis and you have a good summer, they can make upwards of, you know, 50,000 a summer if you're a good guide. Um, it's still, guiding is still kind of a working class thing, I would assume, at least for Westerners. There's a lot of kind of guides today that will come in from other states and Uh, You know, they're coming from better socioeconomic backgrounds. But so that idea of like guides, the guides are the ones in the 50s and 60s who are pushing for catch and release. They're the ones that are really pushing for the conservation and driving the conservation. And really, if you grew up in Montana, you don't eat a lot of fish, even if you fish a lot, because a lot of people catch or practice catch and release, but also it's just really not a common thing. Um, most people will eat, like, deer and elk if you're eating wild game and that sort of thing. It's just, you wouldn't ever catch enough fish. There's just not enough fish to, you know, have a subsistence living, say, in unless you were on, a, like, a salmon run or that sort of thing. So um, there, there are those aspects of it um, that it... Catch and release and kind of fishing for sport. I think you know if you go to places like say Dillon, Montana, like it seems like everyone fly fishes <laughs> regardless of uh, class. But really, the 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 dudes as they're called the the tourists coming in that are coming to fish, those are largely like upper middle class white males coming from places like texas and back east and chicago and in those areas but um sport fishing is really democratic uh at least in the kind of the mid mid to late 20th century
1: yeah yeah and i think you know i was definitely conflating uh kind of maybe earlier on versus now yeah. but yeah. um i mean to that idea of folks you know flying in to go fly fishing, right? Is it, you know, for me, if I'm driving to and from Helena, pretty much I'm willing to bet that most people I see on the Missouri that snakes along are probably folks from, you know, the region. Um, but I still remember talking to, um, one of the, there's two shops in Craig and I forget which one I was in, but he's, the guy there was telling me, he's like, yeah, we get folks coming in with no gear and they'll spend five, $6,000 to outfit themselves for, the weekend and then they may or may not take it with them you know and so so it's kind of you know it, it that, that blew my mind sitting there going not so much that they spent the money but i'm like who's just gonna leave the, all that game? well someone who can afford it obviously but um that, that's tangential to the <laughs> to the purpose of your book here but um all right so so getting towards, towards the end here so what role did uh, western water management play in the evolution of trout culture um, and specifically here, the, the, the part that I'm kind of most, I was most interested in is the, the concept of the tailwaters and how that mm-hmm. affected uh, trout populations.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that was one of the most interesting and ironic kind of environmental aspects of Western water is there's large scale dam building, as we know, in the West going on. But some of these dams are actually not ruining the fishing, but creating better trout fishing. Um, And specifically bottom-release dams, uh, what they do is they limit the uh, extremes of both river flow and water temperature, and because of that, the insect population can really bloom and take off, and that therefore feeds a lot of trout. And within a mile or two miles of some of these major bottom-release dams, you have these huge, massive trout fisheries where just fish are stacked in there. They're big. um, They're massive trout that are created just because of the dams themselves. And that you see this on the Bighorn River, um, the Beaverhead River, um, the South or the Platte River in Colorado, um, various places in Wyoming, as well as you have really this perfect environment to grow trout and ironically is caused by the dam. And that's actually, um, if you talked about you're from the South. There's some really great actually trout fisheries in places in the South and Arkansas and elsewhere that have enough cold water coming out of the dams where they can actually uh, have trout in places where it's too warm to have trout.
1: Yeah. You know, in, Actually, now that you said about like in Arkansas, I remember, because I'm actually, my family's from Arkansas. And so we, I think it was over in um, Grutus Ferry Lake. So that was a massive dam project. But down there on the other side of the dam, I remember my dad taking me to a fishery. I I can't remember what kind of fish it was, but um, again, (laughs) an aside. But um, so, so with the creation of dams, can you actually, this is a bit of a clarification, both for myself, but then also anyone who's listening is, that that tailwaters that you talk about that is that space you know so you'd have a dam and then that'd be that stretch of river that flows for like you said maybe a couple miles from where that dam exists is that, am i understanding that correctly
2: yeah yeah that would be the the definition of the tailwater fisheries and once you know once the river kind of gets further away from the dam then it the the environment becomes a little more natural mm-hmm. a little more normal if you will of different insects and the fish aren't quite as big, but they're really kind of stacked in, mm-hmm. in that tailwater area below okay. dams.
1: So, 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 so they'll, they'll definitely just kind of hang out there just cause the eating's good. Um, then I'm guessing if it gets too much, then just the, the sheer population numbers will probably push whoever a- isn't able to stay around, push them further on down the river. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, cool. Um, all right. So last question here and we'll, we'll start to wrap this thing up. So, um, so, so kind of last big question on the content here is how did environmental ideas of the sixties and seventies influence uh, sport fishermen going forward?
2: Well, one of the, the big kind of pushes here in the sixties and seventies was the concept of wild trout. And this was really kind of a larger connections to the wilderness movement of the fifties and sixties and um, larger concerns over the environment and just in general, in that era um, of ecology. And what happens is that these, ironically, these kind of naturalized fish that have um, okay, made their way into Western rivers, they get re, redefined as wild, right? They're, they're non-native, but they're considered wild. And you have this concern over what are the impacts of hatcheries. And hatcheries actually... Create uh, worse conditions for trout. Hatcheries are a very expensive way to ruin the fishing in rivers. Um, <laughs> to to kind of boil it down to the what hap- the environmental consequences of hatcheries. And so you have states like um, Montana who are doing all of these studies. What happens when we start dumping fish into rivers? Um, and what happens to the fish already there, the, the naturalized non-native ones. And it turns out that they did these kind of massive studies on the Madison River and found out that if they stopped their hatchery study hatchery activities and stopped stocking fish into rivers, the fishing got a lot better. And because of that, Montana would switch to what was called wild trout management. Uh, In the 70s and some of the other Western states, they wouldn't do it statewide, but they would do it on certain rivers and they scaled back some of their hatchery activities. And this created, this was really created some of the best fishing. Um, It was, it was a way to make the fish bigger and make more fish um, by not dumping a bunch of fish on top of them who competed for space and food and um, were aggressive towards the the wild fish, but it was a way that—that's how Montana got known for its wild fishing, right? Wild trout fishing, um, because the fishing got a lot better in the wake of them stopping hatchery activities, and a lot of other states kind of followed suit after that. And you had this this whole push for wild trout management. There's symposiums uh, and there's conferences about it, and there's a lot of studies about the impacts of hatchery fish um, coming after the seventies and these, these pioneering studies on the Madison.
1: On, on top of, you know, you introducing hatchery fish and, and, and of course, they're competing with the fish that are already there. Um, did I, re- if I remember correctly, then I read that like also hatchery fish, like in some instances, like the, the folks managing them had to teach them how to eat f- insects and, and things like that, that like they would develop, a way of living that is specific to hatchery where they're managed by people versus, you know, out in the river. Um, and I don't know, could you, could you talk about that just a little bit? I just, I I was just very curious about, I just found that very interesting. This idea, (laughs) like, well, if they're raised in a tank, expect them to act that way when they're introduced.
2: Yeah. They act tame and domesticated and they are tame and domesticated. And so Idaho will, uh, have to, when they, and they continue to do this to this day in certain places, they have to start feeding the fish worms because they're so used to eating pellets when they get to rivers. And most of the fish that are stocked like this are larger fish that aren't going to um, survive and they're not going to become naturalized. They're either going to die or be caught. And so it's called a kind of put and take fishing, put and take stocking. Um, so they'll teach them how to eat worms. So when they dump them into places, reservoirs, and that sort of thing, that anglers can actually catch them. They're mostly like spin fishers using worms and bait and that sort of thing. But um, it's also not really, uh, not very sporting in terms of a lot of sport fishermen at the time. Besides just the impact on the larger trout populations. It, it gets kind of boring right that that's it takes the fun out of it because you can take a handful of gravel and throw it on the top of the water and that mimics the kind of pellets landing in their tank in the hatcheries and the fish will start feeding and all you have to do is you know throw out a whatever hook you know of bait or a fly and they'll eat it right away so it's it's kind of a boring way to fish. <laughs> and that was one of the criticisms of the time period was that it, it's not sporting, that these fish are not as wild. They're uh, more tame. They're more domesticated. And that was a large criticism coming from the sporting community.
1: And kind of last question on this one, and I don't expect you to know the answer to it because it's more kind of a contemporary, but you know, at least within the state of Montana, and that's my frame of reference, surprise, surprise, you know, I live in great falls and there's a, there's a Rambo trout hatchery down at giant spring state park. And you can go down there and they got all the, the tanks and stuff for them. But then also, you know, they got a viewing area where you can go feed them pellets and stuff like that. And so do you know to kind of, to what extent, um, you know, the Rocky mountain West States are still doing fisheries activities. And if so, I guess kind of why, I mean, that was kind of the question that I was left with. And, and it wasn't the, you know, the part of your you know intent of your book to answer that mm-hmm. one. But I was kind of going, well, if there's a shift to, to wild trout management, why is there a big old fishery here in Great Falls, Montana for rainbow trout?
2: Oh, yeah, I should say that the shift towards wild trout management was on the rivers, but largely reservoirs will be stocked um, quite often. So reservoirs and lakes and um, high mountain lakes continue to be stocked. As well as there's a growing number of kids fish ponds um, around the state and also in other states as well. So um, Montana, the wild trout shift was solely on western rivers, but they would continue to stock rainbow places and, you know, like Holter Reservoir and um various like kids fishing ponds. So they, they still, all the Western states still have hatchery activities, but they're scaled back from that mentality of, we're just going to dump a bunch of fish in the river. They're um, largely kind of aimed at kind of recreational fishing and reservoirs and lakes for the most part. And another aspect of continued hatchery activity is a lot of the work being done is meant to help um native cutthroat trout species so that's 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 the other kind of goal of current hatchery activities
1: okay okay yeah i mean okay so that that makes sense then yeah so there wasn't just a hey we're gonna do it we're gonna stock 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 and then on one january 1960 we're gonna shift wholesale to wild trout management okay (laughs) okay okay cool well thanks for that yeah that was kind of that was just a more contemporary question that, that, that the book left me with um, okay, so last couple questions here, and then we can we wrap up our talk. Um, so you've you've definitely already pointed to it, but can you kind of succinct, succinctly kind of explain? You know, how can your book Trout Culture um, help us help readers better understand the American West?
2: Um, well, one of the things in terms of just trout and angling is that that's our that's a heritage, right? That's kind of a cultural aspect. So it wasn't something that Came later in the 70s, it was something that had been there since the late 19th century. And arguably, if you look at kind of native fishing earlier than that. Um, And a lot of people like to kind of say, well, outdoor recreation uh, really comes later in the 20th century as part of this kind of new West concept, right? But Uh, if you kind of look back in the history, it's also part of the Old West. It's just as Western as your cowboys and that sort of thing. Um, But largely, it's also um, the book's importance, I would say, is thinking about questions of place and belonging and how people create places. And that, that kind of points to, you know, why do we have so many beer labels with trout on them? And why is fly fishing being sold in the West and what are the consequences of that? But it's also that goes beyond the West to some of these other settler societies of, um, you know, South Africa and New Zealand are also struggling with the same issues because there are still all of these non-native invasive trout species. And um, in places like the West, you have, the many species native species of cutthroat trout who some are extinct, some are endangered, some are threatened, but few of them are doing really well. Um, and so that's kind of what leaves us today is how do we kind of continue having strong fisheries and right, strong tourism and recreation which is really economically important that's the other thing i kind of left out is that it becomes a kind of a key aspect of of many of these rocky mountain state economies and then how do we also save some of these native species
1: yeah it's a it's that there's a fine line that folks got to kind of straddle uh between you know trying in this case and that is assuming that the policy is hey let's you know both encourage the economic value of fly fishing trout fishing especially rainbow and, and the brown trout but also you know if the cutthroats are are really struggling in some places how do we try to bring it back you know how to, to what extent does that butt up against the tourist you know, trout economy and stuff like that. And it's, it's interesting as a, not a Montana or someone who's from the Plain States or, you know, the Rocky Mountain States, I'm always fascinated by the debates I see in the news about, you know, just res- natural resources in general, whether it's wolves or, um, you know, just access to public lands or water management. And I think you had referenced like a, a pretty big court case, I think towards the end of the book or might've been in the water management chapter that I'm like, not saying that wasn't a thing that people fought over, you know, in West Tennessee, but like it wasn't like it didn't permeate all aspects of like public conversation and all this kind of stuff. And it's a very fascinating thing just as a as a an outsider for the time being, you know, maybe I'm not an outsider from still here in 20 years. So we'll see. Um, OK, so last question. I always like to wrap up with this one. So what is next for you? Uh, what are you working on?
2: Well, I'm writing a book currently that I'm calling The Fantastically Strange Cold War History of Dolphins. And it's about it comes out comes out of some of these questions from trout culture of how people conceive of animals. And so I'm looking at the time period from the 50s to the 70s to say, how did our ideas of dolphins change? Because dolphins were once fished for for clock and watch oil in the late 19th century, but by the, the 60s there are this iconic, you know, animal that's known for being friendly and nice and intelligent, like Flipper. Um, And I'm telling the story, I'm telling these changes by looking at um, the first uh, successful Animal Liberation Act in U.S. history, which was um, the largely forgotten release of two laboratory dolphins in Hawaii in 1977. And so I'm kind of telling that history that few people really know about and from the stories of the releasers themselves and then kind of telling a larger history of like, what, what are the changes going on with dolphins? And That's I also cool. have my oh. podcast too. So. What did you
1: want to talk, uh, plug the podcast, talk about it a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's called the golf. Um, I just finished up the first season uh, and it's really essentially stories of people in nature on the Texas Gulf coast. And I look at things like, Um, A woman who spent 20 years here in Corpus Christi Bay um, protecting brown pelican nesting grounds when they were almost endangered. And stories about, you know, the largest beach cleanup um, around. It's one of the largest in the nations, actually, and is held every year. And um, stories about sea turtles and volunteers and scientists and um, really kind of some of the, the fun fun activities that the coast is known for, but giving kind of a, a, some historical background and science to some of our coastal issues. Well,
1: it's cool. both of those are like great projects and I'll definitely check out your podcast. Um, I admit to do that. And then I forgot. And so now no, I wrote it down. So now I'll check it out and remember it. And and I'm anxious to, uh, to see what comes of uh, your book about dolphins. And I'll go ahead and say that I think the title is one of the best ones I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, so we'll wrap it up there. Jen, I said, this is a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it.
2: Okay. Thanks Troy. And, um, next time I'm up in Montana, we'll have to go fishing.
1: Sounds good. I'm down for it. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. <laughs>